You're listening to Giro Vagando, the cycling podcast at the 2022 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are in Reggio Emilia. We always believed in him, the team did, we did as uh, the riders, and it's well deserved this one, for us and for him, over the moon. If we came, say, through through the stage, then uh, then we were going to sprint with Case, but he wasn't feeling so good today, so we changed it in the last minute to Alberto, and yeah, w- once we knew we were uh, we were in the clear and, you know, GC was safe and stuff like that, we just, we fully committed for Alberto, and yeah, we, uh, you know, every day we make a plan, and every day everyone, you know, looks through the stage finishes and stuff like that, and yeah, it's just, it's such a good feeling to finally nail it. Where are we, Lionel? We're in Reggio Emilia in a very pleasant square, Daniel, aren't we? This is the food capital of Italy. Are we are we going that far? I'm not or sure we're going Bologna? that far. We might have to consul- consult our guest, third member of the podcast team this evening. I'll introduce him in a minute. We are in Reggio Emilia, a city famous for its beautiful buildings, its beautiful food, fantastic gastronomic reputation. It's famous having been the home of Kobe Bryant in the late 80s, early 90s. It's famous for having given birth, or the province of Reggio Emilia, having given birth to a very famous singer in Italy, Luciano Ligabue, and lots of other things we'll discover during the course of the podcast. Well, we should welcome our third member for the final part of the Giro d'Italia. Well, we've reached the halfway point, really, haven't we? I'll be bowing out at the weekend, but a big welcome to Brian Nygaard. I'm not doing the proper Danish pronunciation already, am I? How should, it, how sh- how should it be said? It's close enough. I'll settle for that. You know, I've I worked for many years for an Australian team and they never actually spelled my name right, so I think we're already way ahead of ourselves here. I mean, I've heard Matt White try to pronounce Podjakar, Pogacar, so that doesn't shock me. Yeah, I'm not offended. But that was that was pretty good, thank you. Lionel, who did we hear from in the introduction there? We heard from two DSM riders, well, I'm going to tell you. Uh, Nico Dentz and Chris Hamilton, both instrumental in, everyone was instrumental for DSM, in the victory today in Reggio Emilia. A surprise victory by Alberto Dainese, the young sprinter ahead of Fernando Gaviria. But we'll learn all about this what happened in the sprint in the tail of the tapper, won't we? Well, we will. And we have to go back to this morning because we awoke to the news that Biniam Gamay, Antamarche star sprinter who won the stage yesterday, was not going to take the start. Is this the official tail of the tapper now? This is the official tail of the tapper, yeah. I feel like we should give you a whistle to signify that. Um, Well, maybe you should be leaning out, you know, out the sunroof of a car with a big flag waving me off. I don't know. Um, I suppose this is a neutralised zone of the tail of the tapper, isn't it? But, Gamay, that really unfortunate incident on the podium yesterday where the cork from the huge Prosecco bottle hit him, I think, under the eye. He went to the hospital. Um, There were some pictures on social media last night of him with a big patch over his eye. And 
clearly unable to take the start today. A really freak accident and a real shame for the race that he's not able to continue. But it was 203 kilometres. I've kept calling it the billiard table stage because it was pan flat all the, the way Piedina to Reggio stage. Emilia. We started off in Piadina country. Remember Marco Pantani's family from Cesenatico? We weren't too far from there this morning. They used to sell these savoury pancakes. These filled pancakes that that area of Italy, the Adriatic coast, is famous for. So Piadina stage, I would call it. Okay. Well, two riders in the breakaway. Filippo Taliani of Drone Hopper, Gianni the, Savio's boy. The trout of Gavardo. But was that the plan? Well, I'll tell you what, let's hear from Gianni Savio. Today the formation was 6-1-1. 6 to help the one, Filippo Tagliani, to enter in the breakaway. Because for us it was important the breakaway of today for the, for the overall classement of uh, um, the sprint and uh, he is uh, first and uh, after this uh, also to, to try to have a good results in the sprint here in Reggio Emilia and uh, in the sprint he was uh, 15. Today was the food stage, la, la tappa gastronomica no, <laughs> dedicata al parmigiano reggiano. Sì, What's the favorite piatto italiano of Gianni Savio? Uh, here uh, there are i tortellini. Tortellini is typical of, uh, of Emilia, Emilia Romagna, but Emilia uh, country. And, it's, and you like it? It's your favorite? Yes, yes. I like this. I like it. I like very much this. It's a very good pasta, Italian. Tortellini. I mean, are we going to talk cycling or food? I've, well, I it guess was the food stage, as mentioned there. But really, it was a stage. It was all about. It was supposed to be about Parmesan cheese. But as we've already said, this region is famous for many delicacies, including tortellini. Well, he was away with Luca Rastelli of Bardiani, and they were up the road until 85 kilometres to go. Caught quite early, really, when you consider. It was a 203-kilometre stage. We then saw Team Ineos, Ben Swift on the front, drilling the pace, leading out Richard Carapaz for the time bonus sprint. And the three seconds he took for winning that sprint moved Carapaz up from fourth overall to second overall. 58 kilometres to go. Dries de Bont, the former Belgian champion of Alpecin Fenix, attacked, and he spent nearly 57 kilometres out in front on his own. The gap was never huge. And he did look in the closing stages, the last 5, 10k or so, that he might pull off a shock, but he was caught with a just over one kilometre to go. And then we saw the sprint finish. And as you say, Daniel, it was Alberto Dainese, the 24-year-old DSM rider, who gave Italy their first stage win of this Giro. This is only his second Grand Tour. He had a few top fives in last year's Vuelta. You might remember he was second to Jakobsen, Fabio Jakobsen at La Manga. Um, not playing golf but actually cycling that day Fernando Gaviria of UAE was second Daniel we remember very well Gaviria winning here in 2017 when he looked to have the world at his sparkling cycling shoes didn't he um, but no second place for Gaviria third for Simone Consoni of Cofidis Arno Damar fourth Caleb Ewan fifth and Mark Cavendish sixth 
Juan Pedro Lopez of Trek will enjoy his eighth day in pink tomorrow. As I said, Carapaz is up to second, 12 seconds behind. Almeida is third, also 12 seconds behind. And Arno de Mar, who was only three points ahead of Gomai last night in the points competition, he's now 77 ahead of his new nearest challenger. That's Mark Cavendish. Still gassing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Supersapiens. When it comes to talking about what is normal for glucose levels, we actually get this question quite often. So is this normal or is that normal? We expect to see a straight line up to the end of our training or racing or whatever, but it's not going to happen in, in reality. So it really takes a lot of experimenting uh, to understand what is the optimal fueling strategy and what is what is my individual response. We do know what our reference values we need to stick to and the app is really kind of informative on these levels. But I would say that just after kind of the first uh, one or two days of using uh, the Super Sapiens sensor, you can already see kind of what's your basal values, how do you react to certain types of food, uh, what happens during the night and what kind of gets you out of the balance. So this is where I would push my focus a bit more to. So what keeps me stable and what doesn't and uh, what gets me out of that blue zone during the recovery phase and what keeps me more stable during the training itself. So this is how we kind of advise to move our focus from not what is normal, but what works for me and at which level. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens for sponsoring the cycling podcast. I've been asking Christina Scroce of the University of Verona what I should be looking for when I've been analysing the data on the Super Sapiens app. And one of my first big questions was, what is normal? What should a normal blood glucose profile look like? And how long does it take wearing the patch on my arm to kind of get a baseline where I can work out what my normal responses to certain types of food are? Go to supersapiens.com if you want to find out more and buy the patches and sign up for the app. Well, Brian, what did you make of your first day on the Giro? I love being back at the Giro. It's nice to see you guys again. It's been a while. I had a great trip here across the Apennines from the coast, you know, down in Tuscany where I live, and then up here. And it's, uh, as, as you also mentioned yesterday on the podcast, it's, it's summer now, isn't it? Really, it's just taking taking a huge leap in towards really summery vibe temperatures are high and yeah the racing is great i think the layout for the last part of the giro is fantastic and as we always say brian to me this is the part of italy where italy feels most like italy if that makes sense it yeah we have you and i historically have disagreed on that on I'm, most things in fact yeah i um i like the south a lot and i often find that the further south you go the the more Italian it, it feels, but Italian is, Italy is so diverse, and you and Lionel have had the, the privilege to see you know, basically all of it in the sense that you, you're starting down that far south and some of the lesser-known regions, and, and now you're probably more, you feel safer here, you feel more in your comfort zone, and you're, you're far away from the water again, Daniel, you feel good now. 
Uh, on that note, actually, on geography, I've got, uh, I have to cheapishly tiptoe off to Corrections Corner because our friend from the Bidon podcast, the official Giro d'Italia podcast, uh, Michele Pilacci, told me today, the other day, Lionel, I'd said that Termoli was in uh, Abruzzo. It's actually in Molise. This is uh, it's a, a fairly minor pedantic detail. However, well, it's not. When we it? were talking about spaghetti in Molise, well, not in. Well, I possibly said this because, of course, Molise famously doesn't exist, as discussed the other day. But we were talking about spaghetti alla chitarra, which is a really, really famous Abruzzese dish. The most famous version of it, we were told, is from Termoli. But Termoli is, is in Molise, not Abruzzo. So apologies to all Molisani and Abruzzese and all Italians. Well, before we get to the stage finish and the sprint win by Alberto Danese, we should also just say... You know, we parachuted Brian in here. He's taken four trains to get here from his home um, specifically to discuss later on in the podcast um, the conditions upon which a bottle of Prosecco will uh, behave when the cork is unleashed. I mean, there's some really interesting detail about that coming up a bit later on. But the sprint finish, DSM, played an absolute grinder. Yeah, without being too glib, Alberto Dainese was launched like a... Prosecco or champagne cork out of the bunch, wasn't he, in the last 100 metres or so? Came from nowhere, as you said, Brian. A surprise to me. I mean, I've seen him sprint. I saw him sprint well at the Vuelta España last year. But at this Giro, when he has spoken to us in the mix zone, he's been fairly, I wouldn't say pessimistic, but fairly circumspect in his ambitions. He's talked about, he thinks, being a level below Ewan and Cavendish. And he talked in terms of, of maybe getting a good, a few you know, top five, top three finishes possibly. He wasn't really talking about victories. I think partly because the team here is quite inexperienced and it's not, well, he certainly doesn't have the sprint train that Arno Demar or Mark Cavendish or, or even Ewan has. No, and especially because they have Roman Bardet riding high in the GC with high hopes of a very good overall finish at the did, end. Did he lead him out today? He, he did. I well, mean, Pozzavivo leading out Gamay yesterday, Bardet leading out Dainese. I'm looking forward to Mikel Lander leading out Phil Bauhaus tomorrow. <laughs> you can't exclude it at this point. Well, after the finish, I spoke to Matt Winston from Team DSM about the lead out. And, uh, well, this is obviously the fruit of a lot of work that's gone into the process, as he says. Yeah, I think kind of we, uh, we had a super hectic day. It was really windy all day and we had to really focus on being together as a team when we came into the final. Uh, the guys really looked after Alberto, constantly asking, where are you? Are you with us? Are you with us? just keeping that focus, keeping that motivation. Um, and then, yeah, brought him into the final really, really nicely. And, uh, yeah, it's amazing to get a stage win. Yeah, it's been a process over the last couple of years where we kind of, we've been trying to make those steps and we knew how talented Alberto was. And we kept saying, when you get a clear run at the line, then the chance will come. And, and today he got that clear run. And he had came out of the, the bubble at just the right moment and uh, showed he had some really good speed to take the victory. Yeah, I mean, we kind of just kept focused on the process. You know, we, we also knew we were in a good spot. Uh, we're holding a good position on GC and we've rode really well as a team in the first week. Um, so we, we said yesterday, let's keep that going, let's keep that momentum going and, and it will come. We, we'll come out of this race in a really good way. So it's nice that directly two days later, you know, bam, we, uh, we can take that victory. Can you just talk me through very quickly the, the lead out, taking it back from Dainese as the last man? What happens in the last kilometres before then from maybe Bardet doing his bit a few K out? Yeah, I'm, I've not 
totally seen the whole footage. Um, but yeah, I knew the guys were together. They, I could hear that in the radio, them talking to each other. And um, Roman was there, Case, Nico Dens, who normally is the lead out trainer, ridden on the front pretty much all day to keep Roman out of trouble. Um, but they kind of dropped him off there in that sprinter's bubble there. And that was that was super important. That's where he needed to be. And then he could he could kind of surf that last 200 meters and, uh, and, and pop out in the, in the last 100. Did you actually see much of the finish? Who were you kind of concerned about? Yeah, to, to be honest, we were we were looking at kind of just it's all about making steps, and we kind of said, you know, let, let's just start doing consistent sprints. So that's the important thing with sprinting. Let's be consistent, and we've done a couple of top tens, and we were just kind of building. We knew Alberto had the talent, um, but we kind of in sprinting, I think you can't you can be concerned about everyone. Like there's 20 guys there that are all sprinting, they can all sprint to top tens. And I think it's just focusing on your sprint, being in the right spot and, and taking that, that momentum. Just on the sprint, it was another one where everyone seemed to go a bit too early, really. Fernando Gaviria said it wasn't necessarily the wrong decision because it was a tailwind finish and he thought that he was going at the right time. He just didn't have enough to hold off Dainese. Mark Cavendish looked to be in an absolutely prime position at one point. But then it kind of went wrong for him a bit, didn't he? And the, looked at the other part of the screen and then looked back again and suddenly Cavendish was boxed in. So something didn't go quite right for quick step. It, it would be interesting to chart and assess the, the likelihood, the frequency of teams, lead-out trains and sprinters going too early on stages when it, everyone knows that it's going to finish in a sprint and, and it is a foregone conclusion. Pretty, it feels like a foregone conclusion to them all day and it's also fairly, the running is fairly straightforward, which was the case today. He looked annoyed with it for sure. It was interesting to see Gaviria, how he finally almost got everything right. He's had all kinds of issues this year so far placing himself he's had mechanical issues and then the one day where he finally gets it right this relatively unknown rider pips him at the line and he was looking over his shoulder and he had sort of the look like who are you and also second why are you here i mean it was a, it was a welcome return to form I mean, we we were here last time when gaviria won weren't we line i mean that you hear things about Gaviria that he he's not as committed as um, certain other riders, and that he's a little bit of a rock star, and you know he has a certain swagger about him. There's a certain element of the kind of the flash, the, the Lord Flashheart we used to call him, didn't we? Didn't we? The the famous character in Blackadder, the comedy series in the UK, and he had a bit of of that about him. But he's in reasonable physical condition. He's proved it um, on numerous occasions in this Giro. Yeah, I mean, his last Grand Tour stage win was at the Giro in 2019. Got to remember, he had a torrid time with COVID. You know, one of the first professional riders. Three times. Yeah, I think the first professional rider to actually be publicly named as having contracted COVID at the UAE Tour right at the beginning of the pandemic. Spent time in hospital. Um, you know, this was at a time, obviously, when no one really knew what COVID was going to be and what kind of lasting effects there might be. And he's had it twice since subsequently, as far as we know from the report. So, I mean, a real difficult time for him. So just to be back in the mix is, uh, is something, but I'm sure he will want to get a win under his belt. And there aren't too many more opportunities here, are there? No, and he's also riding for a team that really both here and, and elsewhere usually have another agenda with another rider. They do here, don't they? Yeah, yeah they do here with Almeida. Do. And, and I will ne as long as he rides for that team, I've... I find it impossible to believe that he will be at the tour. Mm. 
Champs, what did you make of Cavendish's sprint? Well, we've already said that there was a, a timing issue there that was possibly not his fault. Well, it wasn't his fault. Um, I think that the timing, the team got the timing slightly wrong. Davide Ballerini has been a part of his lead-out train. Well, he was a part of the very successful lead-out train at the Tour last year. But there have been a few occasions over the last year when Ballerini has conspicuously gone rather early. And it looked to be the case again today. Just... To get confirmation of that, I spoke to Mark Cavendish's coach, Vasi Antostopoulos, Antostopoulos, at the finish. Well, Vasi, not the result you wanted or Mark wanted. What's your analysis of the sprint? From what we saw, I think uh, Ballerini's last lead-out man was just a bit too fast in front, too, too early. So Mark had to wait a little bit for the other guys to pass, and then he was just blocked. He, was, he started sprinting too far back, so... There was no chance. Yeah, there seemed to be a moment of hesitation um, when he was on the front. Could he have gone at that point or did no. he, he had to wait? No, no, that was 3.50 to, to go. That was really early, so that's why he hesitated. He had to wait, but, you know, he lost the momentum, momentum over there. The other guys came from around and then it was impossible to sprint. He was just blocked. <laughs> there aren't too many opportunities left, Vazi, but uh, we spoke earlier in the Giro. You expected him to go to Verona. Is it too early to say whether that's still the plan? No, the plan is to go to Verona. We'll see what happens, but uh, that's the plan. To do, to do, you know, the whole tour, the whole Giro, <laughs> the whole race on. And then, as you said, we have two more opportunities. We already have one stage win, which was the goal at the beginning. But, uh, you know, you always want to win. So, two more chances. We've also got to remember that Quickstep have lost their kind of pilot, haven't they? Michael Morkoff, who just gets the timing right spot on calms everyone down calms everyone down exactly yeah um, just perhaps would have had the reins on Ballerini a little bit longer and given him the word when it was the right moment to go uh, but Ballerini perhaps on his own a little bit excited as you said Daniel um, not only the anticipation of you know four hours knowing it's going to be a sprint finish but also the tailwind finish so the speeds mm. are even higher so everything is amplified just that little bit more it might only be another three four kilometres an hour um, in terms of the speed, or it might be more than that, but everything's happening even more quickly for them. So those mistakes are, in a way, amplified. We heard Vassi there talk about, well, his belief that Cavendish will try to go to Verona. Lionel, we heard noises today, rumours that, well, in the Belgian press, it could be reported as early as tomorrow that they have found an agreement, um, Quickstep Alpha Vinyl have found an agreement with Tim Merlier to sign him as a second sprinter next year now what implications will that hold for Mark Cavendish it seems logical that he will move on from Quickstep Alpha Vinyl but our understanding is that he he intends to go to Verona at this Giro but he intends to ride way beyond this season maybe for another year two years possibly even further than possibly even longer than that and I think we're picking up rumours that Cavendish's representatives are making it known that he would be available for somebody that's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by GCN Plus. And last week in the GCN Plus slot, I mentioned our kind of association and friendships and collaborations with various members of the GCN Plus team. And I forgot to mention Dan Lloyd because he's been on the podcast quite a few times. I can remember recording an episode of the Giro with him somewhere. Was that with you, Daniel, or maybe with Richard? I can't remember, a long time ago. might have even been our very first Giro in 2016. And a bit later than that, 
perhaps two, three years ago now, I had a very enjoyable long-form interview over a couple of beers with Dan Lloyd in which he talked about his life and career. Couple of anyway, beers? Couple of beers? Couple of How beers. How do we define a couple these days? Wow. A couple, actually. Um, GCN Plus is the place to watch the Giro d'Italia from start to finish because every kilometre is broadcast live and on the GCN Plus coverage, it's ad-free as well. They, of course, have a stellar team of former professionals and other experts to summarise the action. And you can watch the highlights on demand and even watch full stage replays if you wish. I'm not sure I'd recommend a full stage replay of today's stage, perhaps. But on my walk down to the team buses, which were a good couple of kilometres away, I did uh, rewind the action and watch the sprint finish again, which is another thing you can do on the app. I was doing that on my phone. So if you want to sign up for GCN, you can get 25% off an annual subscription by going to gcn.eu slash cyclingpod. We'll put those details in the show notes. And if you don't know where to find the show notes, they're the bit in your podcast app just below the podcast title. We tell you what is in the episode and we don't spoiler the result. And you can also find out about our advertisers and partners. Daniel, who was that and what was that all about? Well, I know that was the uh, aging, leather-panted commandante of Italian rock music, Vasco Rossi, the, probably the most famous son of Modena, the province of Modena. We went through Modena today. We talked about him last year, didn't we? His world record-breaking concert in 2017, the biggest ticketed concert in the history of humankind, something like 250,000 um, attendees wow indeed and that was a very famous song by Vasco Rossi Bollicine which means little bubbles and Bollicine is also sort of code word in Italian for Prosecco champagne if you order just say to a waiter I want some Bollicine they might bring in Prosecco or a Spumante or champagne even and this is all very topical today isn't it well, it is because of this extraordinary and unfortunate incident on the podium yesterday when Biniam Gamay was opening the big bottle of Prosecco, which is traditionally given to the winner of the stage. And, well, he was leaning over it and the court came out at high velocity and hit him in the eye. And, well, we saw at the start of the Giro a similar incident with Matthew van der Poel, but to no ill effect. Um, but not great for the sponsors, Astoria, who supply the Prosecco for the podium presentations and sponsor the Giro. And Couldn't I suppose at the tour, could it? Because there's no champagne on the podium at the tour because of the ban on alcohol advertising at sporting events. Well, there's been some talk today as well, hasn't there been about whether this could have been avoided? What measures can be taken to avoid something like this happening? Mario Venu the... got pretty grumpy when he was asked about it in the mix zone he? he was asked what measures will be taken today mm. and he sort of threw up his arms said what kind of measures do you want us to take i have a suggestion they could you know chill the bottles first of well, all brian who, who wants to drink before we prosecco? go on let's introduce your credentials to talk about this and why have we brought you in well we brought you in for the last 10 days of the giro but we were particularly interested in hearing what you've got to say about this issue you can talk about this with some authority because 
You're now on the board. You're not only um, the the manager of a of a winery in California. You're now on the board. You were telling us earlier of uh, a rather large, prestigious winery in Sonoma County, and they make you make sparkling wine. Do you? N- no, no, you we don't, don't make sparkling wine. I'm I'm quite familiar with the process of making sparkling wine. Uh, I make my own wine uh, under my own uh, brand, but I'm mostly I'm an advisor for the wine. What's your analysis? And we, we must be careful not to be flippant because it's a serious. It was a serious yeah. incident, and it's a, an injury that's cost the Giro one of the shooting stars of this year's race, one of the stories of this year's race, and it's a great shame. But give us your analysis of what happened. Well, yesterday. also, I think it, it could potentially have been millimeters from ruining his career, just as as he was started, you know, becoming a real superstar. Well, it could have been avoided in the sense that obviously you don't point a bottle that you're about to open to watch yourself or anyone else. But it often happens with sparkling wines, you know, that CO2 is trapped inside of them. When you make wine, you turn sugar into alcohol via fermentation and the yeast produces CO2. And with sparkling wines, you trap it inside of the bottle, often via second fermentation. With Prosecco, you actually do it in a tank. But it's the same, basically the same molecular uh, strategy that you want to go for. And when they're warm, these bottles, like I said earlier, like who wants to open those warm anyways, the bubbles expand. And often they shake these bottles also. But when they're warm, the, the cork will go out even faster. You know, the pressure inside a champagne or Prosecco bottle is equivalent to that of a, a, a bike tire. It's around six bars, twice the pressure of a, of a car tire. And when they're warm, they'll, 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 they'll take off even faster almost up to 80 kilometers an hour and when that hits your eye it, it, it you basically you can lose your eyesight it's and and that has happened before in, in history actually famously the person who invented the intermittent windscreen wiper i read today this i didn't know on beforehand lost his eyesight at his wedding because he shot out his eye with a champagne bottle so when they're warm you have to be extra careful you know when when the co2 is trapped inside the bottle you know you obviously it's thicker glass in a champagne bottle it's heavier bottle but you also put this cage system on top of the cork. And sometimes with a warm bottle, even when still the cage um, setting is still on or halfway on, the cork could actually blow uh, straight towards your face or, or someone standing close by. But this is one of the traditions of the Giro. It's also common in other sports, Formula One, for example. And, of course, the photographers and the sponsors, Antomarche sponsors, would have wanted the, you know, the great shot of Gamay with the, the Prosecco, um, you know, exploding in celebration. And it's just a very unfortunate incident that, that this has happened. But today, it looks like Astoria, the Prosecco suppliers, have tried to, um, well, do some damage limitation. Finesse this. Finesse, yeah, some, a bit of PR. Yeah, it's, it's a hard one to clean up after, I would say, especially if, if, it, if it had gone even you, you more Avery. Yeah, I spotted in the, in the flash interview. interview. Something unusual. Yeah, I, I haven't seen that before, and, and I'm not sure if it was that great piece of damage control either way, but when, when Danese was interviewed, he was holding two of these bottles in sort of with the logo visible on the screen, and that was definitely something he was asked to do. I don't think anyone, especially with his, not at least him, would have done that by himself. Is, is that the sort of thing you'd have done in your PR days to try and... Uh try and recover from a, a bad day yesterday no i would uh, there's several rules of thumb in pr one is maximum disclosure minimum delay 
So you would actually try and explain why this happened and how you can avoid it and then probably also help the podium protocol with some kind of help to explain to people there what they should and what they shouldn't do. What are your feelings about sabering? I, you know, I think this... For those it, who don't know what sabering is... Yeah, so it's basically... This, this is, it looks like a... It's a sword. A sword, like a short sword with, you know, you can sort of... If you Lop hit, off the top of yeah, the Yeah, if you hit the right thing. angle... It'll cut off the thin part of the top, and, and that would actually the pressure that we spoke about that's inside the bottle. Any glass that will splinter, obviously, when that breaks off, will be pushed away from this 80 kilometer an hour stream of bubbles and It causes, a, it and causes a lot more injuries than conventional. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I'd rather not see that on the podium. I mean, this is this is a ridiculous suggestion, Chaps. Daniel. Chaps. Talking about Lionel, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to just try and draw it back to the race today. Let's do that. You might have a hard time with the, the item coming next. Um, well, today was an interesting stage. It was an interesting route. It was the food stage. It was the Parmesan stage. We also went through uh, balsamic vinegar country, Mardina. We also went through some interesting places for illustrious figures um, to whom these particular villages, towns have given birth. San Lazzaro di Savena, just outside Bologna, we had that. Alberto Tomba is from there, the famous slalom skier, the Italian slalom skier, skier of the 90s. Um, we had Correggio, um, birthplace of Luciano Ligabue, a very famous Italian singer. We had sex as well. What? <laughs> we had a place called, did you know we had a place called Sesso just before we got to the press room? Sesso means sex in oh. them, in them oh, Italian. This is, this is, this um, is, this is, going this... back, going back to San Lazzaro di Savena, Alberto Tomba's home village. Alberto Tomba, very good friends with the father of Lucky Lorenzo Fortunato, winner on the Zoncalan last year. Hasn't started the Giro too well. Came in with high hopes. I mean, there's been a lot of talk, a lot of teeth gnashing about the poor state of Italian cycling. There was a bit of that today, wasn't there, in the Dainese press conference. And he sort of said, well, the Italians are just whingers. And, um, you know, they don't they don't really appreciate what they've got. But there has been talk about the lack of GC options, GC contenders coming from Italy in this Giro. The, the high hopes that Lucky Lorenzo might turn into one this year hasn't quite gone as well as he would have hoped. However... I spoke to him yesterday, in fact, about the coming week and how he feels about his race so far. I'm more or less level par at the moment. The three days in Hungary didn't quite go the way I expected. Then on the Etna stage, I crashed at the start and struggled the rest of the day. Then on Blockhouse, I was back to my normal level. Not quite up there with the best guys, but not far behind. I'll try to reap some of what I'm sowing in the second half of the Giro and win a stage. This year everyone's looking at me after my win on the Zoncolan last year and there's a lot of judgement that wasn't there last year. The pressure's not getting to me but I know it's there from the team, my teammates and from myself. I haven't stopped being the same cheerful guy that everyone saw last year plus I tend to go better in the third week. There's still a long way to go. I hope this third week is quite controlled, that the brakes go early and the rest of us can be on cruise control behind. But the Genova stage is pretty hard and anything could happen. Then the stages at the weekend, Torino and Cogne, are both for climbers. Well, Daniel, Lorenzo Fortunato of Aeolo Cometa is in 16th place at the moment, 6.51 down. Not too bad, not too bad. I should also have said that he was born in Bologna, but he lives... Um, just outside, spends a lot of time 
just outside San Lazaro di, Sa, di Savena. And Alberto Tombone and his dad used to play football, apparently, together. A bit further up the GC, Richard Carapaz was led out by Ineos Grenadiers, Ben Swift notably, the British champion, to take that time bonus sprint three seconds, which lifted him up to second place overall. A curious move, but perhaps indicative of the fact that there's so few chances to take any time and that this may well boil down to a race of seconds next week. Or perhaps he just wants to be in the pole position to inherit the pink jersey when the GC riders once again come to the fore. I did ask Rod Ellingworth what the thinking was, and he said that it was basically there just because it was there. There was an opportunity, turn the legs, bit of speed work, um, but he does see it being a real sort of mano-a-mano battle later on in the race, and it could be the case that every second counts. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science and Sport. Science and Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science and Sport. Everyone can get 25% off all Science and Sport products at scienceandsport.com with the code SISCP25. Daniel, what would be your Italian food-themed Science and Sport energy product? Um, I put you on the spot there, haven't I? Um, I don't know, Lionel. Last night we had, as you know, I eat predominantly vegan diet outside the Grand, Grand Tours. Um, last night we had an outstanding vegetarian meal, didn't we? But I'm, I'm trying to think... Um, I, I probably shouldn't say this because we're sponsored by Science and Sport. When I did my ultra marathon in Mallorca last year, I found sweet potato to be a very good solution, um, sort of mashed up into um, little water bladders. Well, Science and Sport, you'll be pleased to know, does have plenty of vegan supplements on the website, scienceandsport.com. And as I say, you can get 25% off. So if you are vegan or vegetarian, uh, you can check on the website what is going to be most suitable for you. Sticking with food, Daniel. The food stage today, wasn't it? The, well, we hoped to taste some Parmigiano Reggiano. We didn't taste much of it. Um, we hoped to get our hands around a forma of prosciutto. Uh, prosciutto. We're about to get to prosciutto ham um, of um, Parmigiano Reggiano. Brian, you, you partial to a bit of the old um, Parmesan? Yeah. The Parma, what, do they, what do Americans call it? Parmesan. Parmesan. Apologies to all of our American listeners. It's fine to call it that. It's fine, but it's curious, isn't it? God, what's happened to you? You've gone all laid back all of a sudden. Yeah, Sorry. what the hell happened with Absolutely language, Absolutely fine. <laughs> um, Brian, speak to me a little bit, a little bit about Parmesan. You know, often the, there's re, everything is regional in Italy. Language, culture, everything, you know, it's, it's a fairly young country in that sense. But I find that, that Parmesan is something that all Italians will always have in the kitchen. There's other th- regional things that some Italians would never see, you know, when they when they when they cook regional stuff. But I think every Italian family has either a Parmigiano or a Grana Padano in their refrigerator, and and you know, my family is is no different. I have two daughters who then only two and a half years old, and they they already they're very familiar with Parmigiano. So it's a really a, it's it's the king of Italian cheeses, I would say. Lionel, yesterday we made a detour via well uh, an area of the provincia of Modena, a detour in the podcast anyway, called the Bassa Modenese, and I, it was a dark detour. It, it was, was a, a dark mm. sort of um, well, what would you call it? Um, I mean, it was a true crime detour. It was we, a t- we, a true, mean, crime true crime de- podcasts are very. But well, wasn't popular. it actually a fake crime? 
Well, yes, it was a, f- a fake. Absolutely right. Yes, fake you're crime. right, Brian. Anyway, um, some people enjoyed this and some people didn't. <laughs> but I got one suggestion today that I should, I should do more of this. There should be a sort of chapter every every evening where I investigate maybe a darker aspect or a shadier aspect of uh, the area that we're traveling through. It brought to mind the book by, T- I think Tobias Jones is the author, The, about the Dark Heart the, the back of, of, Italy. of Italy. And I thought it being the food stage today, I would mention something. And tomorrow, in fact, we're starting in Parma, home of Parma ham. I thought I'd mention something that was known in Italy as prosciuttopoli, which would be prosciutto gate in English. What was this? Well, it was an investigation that was started in 2014 by the Central, this is a terrible translation by me, Central Inspectorate of Quality Protection and the Repression of Product Fraud in Agriculture. Anyway, these boys, they began an investigation. They believed that people were selling Parma ham that wasn't really Parma ham or San Daniele ham. That's the other famous ham in Italy. It's from Friuli up in the north um, east. And they conducted this investigation and they found that over a million ham thighs with a combined value of over 80 million euros wow. were being sold on false pretenses. Now, for ham to qualify as prosciutto di Parma, it obviously has to come from a specific area. But that also has to be a certain percentage of fat and a certain percentage of lean mass. The problem is that the Italian pigs stipulated in the regulations mature slowly. And so certain producers and vendors began telling porky pies about how their pigs were being raised. And this, Brian, is where we get to Denmark and your presence on the Giro. Um, why did you arrive today, Brian? Was it was it linked to the fact that we were starting Palmer tomorrow? Because well, everything it does I'm seem a bit of a coincidence <laughs> as the method used by the fraudsters did you know was, to ins- was to inseminate Italian pigs with sperm from the Danish Duroc breed, then stamp them up as hams as regular um, wow. prosciutto di Parma or prosciutto like di if, if I had brought San anything Daniele. of the sort, it would have been useless by now, because when I dropped off my suitcase in your rental car, it was. <laughs> It's 45 degrees, <laughs> so I would be selling pretty lousy product if that was well, really my, uh, my well, scheme. Well, Brian, you're here, so I would deduce from that that you weren't one of the 200 people investigated. Ten eventually found guilty. Six companies made to pay fines amounting to tens of thousands of euros. That doesn't sound very much to me, does it? Not for fake ham. No, so we'll be on the lookout tomorrow for fake thighs, fake Parma ham thighs. What do you think? Prosciuttopoli, that's called. So another, I'm, I'm, I think tomorrow I know what I'm going to go with. I will have to come up with a title for this. Uh, Daniel delves in, into in, the dark in, hearts. Inspector Freeber. Yes. Inspector Freeber investigate. Well, you had an investigation to conduct today. I oh, sent you oh, off oh, on, oh, no. with an assignment to collect canvas opinion about Italian food, collect colourful yeah. accounts. Oh. Um, oh. full of florid gastronomic detail about what yeah. the riders love to yeah. eat in Italy. I know. I know. And what did you come you, back you, with? Well, you, you, you should st- have your own jingle for that. You stitched me up here, Daniel. But What uh, did you come back well, with, Lionel? Let's I, hear I, it. No, no. let me just first of all caveat all of this with the fact that we arrived very late at the start today, didn't oh, we? Here Which, we go. We, and why did we arrive late at the start? Well, we arrived it, because... it made a change. It's on stage 11. It made a, a change for a delay to be caused by something I'd done rather than your rucksack of doom, which has been causing... We, we've been leaking time since Hungary because of that rucksack. We're only about two hours down because of the rucksack of doom. Today, we lost 40 minutes because we got 20 minutes down the road from our very, very pleasant guest house that we stayed in last night, and they rang you up and said, one of you has taken the key. Can you pleasant. bring, bring you, it back? You're very bring, sparing with compliments, aren't you? Pleasant. 
nice. Oh, Love. pleasant. Oh, I mean, it was wonderful, wasn't it? It yeah, was, it was lovely. It was yeah. lovely. Um, Chavepoli. It was. Yeah. It was. It was. You know, in the car this morning, you were being as effusive about it as these riders we're about to hear were of about Italian cuisine. Well. I just want to apologise to everyone for failing in my assignment because, uh, well, we were very late to the start and this was the best I could do. The question was, what is your favourite Italian dish? And this is what Kuhn Bauman and Hugh Carthy said. Yeah, I'll eat anything. Doesn't matter where it's from, I'll if it's good, I'll eat it. Um, I would say I really like the risotto, but uh, yeah. Actually, I don't complain at all if I have to eat in an Italian restaurant. Wonderful journalism, Lionel. <laughs> Tremendous. <laughs> the finest. The yellow, the not the yellow jersey, the Maglia Rosa to you, for the journalist Maglia Rosa to you today. Who's in the real Maglia Rosa? Juan P. Lopez. Juan P. Lopez. He's not in the blue sash that goes to the He's president not. of the Spaghetti alla Chitarra Association, as discussed yesterday. He's still in the Maglia Rosa, but how long can he hold this Maglia Rosa? Today, I asked his Trek Segafredo team manager, Luca Guercilena. It's been a great Giro for you guys so far with Juan Bay in the pink jersey. It's starting to look a little bit like Almeida last year. Uh, is that, am I going too far with that? Am I exaggerating slightly? Or might we see him hold on longer than we all expected? Well, let's say that Joao has made already a couple of seasons at very high levels. So clearly he's, uh, he's uh, at a different, uh, in a different situation right now. He's here to compete really for the, for the big GC. Juan Bay is a surprise that uh, that he can have the jersey for so many days, but obviously he's a pure climber, and we know this Giro is very tough for the for for the altitude uh, on the parkour. So for sure he's fitting to Wampe. Wampe is a guy that loves the three weeks. So uh, we we know that uh, he can make a step, obviously, as Almeida did maybe more in 220 than last season. So we will try to support him to to have a look to the to the final GC. Uh, let's say top 10 to be realistic that's the goal but uh, we need to take it day by day you know we are already enjoying a lot he's already enjoying a lot but so far each, each stage is different and like today you know it's full of wind so for a guy of 53 kilo you know it will be a most complicated day than not on the Dolomites so we need to take it really as it is but we are happy and we would like to keep this mood focus on on GC but uh, also looking at the stages uh, in the in the next days and if you and he have one worry, one stage maybe where you, you think that he might struggle, might find it hard, what is that worry? I would say today, because with the wind and the hectic final in the small narrow road, uh, for a guy of his weight, for sure, it's, it's pretty complicated. And we know that it's not because you have the pink jersey that you give you a present to keep a position, so we will be very scary. Then if we analyze the wall Giro, I would say the Torino stage will be the, uh, very complicated because it's uh, uh, hard, uh, not a straight line uh, for uh, more than 10k and uh, will be one of the biggest tests of the Giro to me, uh, way more than the long mountains. Very last thing, Luca, today is the food stage. We're asking everyone what is the best dish in Italy? Now, coming from where you're from, I expect you to say risotto, some kind of risotto, but you tell me. I would say cotoletta alla milanese, <laughs> uh, because I'm really from Milan. But I agree also risotto alla milanese is very good. Normally you, you get both, right? In Italy you always go for the first dish and the second one. So I would say risotto is first and cotoletta is second.
Lionel, I mentioned our journey, our route today. We flew up the, what did we establish it was? The E45 motorway? What's the name? What's the motorway line, um, Brian, from the Adriatic Coast up to Milan, basically? It's the, is it the A3, the E45? Yeah, but anyway. that's not the one that goes straight to Milan. The one you took was towards Ancona and then you crossed over around Bologna, didn't you? Yes, yes. It sort of flies across the Pianura Padana, the, the, the Po Basin. And, well, it's very familiar to us. We've done it many, many times. And we passed the old headquarters of the Mercatone Uno supermarket chain. And the famous, well, we helped to make it famous last year, the Marco Pantani giant marble. Now, it was also very poignant for me because the last time I was there, it was I was with Richard Moore. And it was last year at the Giro d'Italia. And that brings us to tonight's Giro del Buffalo. This is Richard and I last year outside the Maxi Birillo, the Maxi Marble in Imola. Il Giro del Buffalo, remembering Richard Moore. Rich, where are we? We're standing by a motorway, Daniel. A very busy motorway, um, somewhere between Bologna and Imola. More specifically, Rich, where are we? What are we standing next to? We're standing in the shadow, Daniel, of a giant marble. How that, giant that, is this marble? I, I would say about five metres acro- across. Five <laughs> is diameter? Is, it, is, diameter. That, is that the term you're looking that for? It. Um, it's, and it's got, Mar- it's got Marco Pantani in it. Well, we talked about this, didn't we, the other day? This is the Pantani monument, the marble, the giant marble, the maxi marble, um, outside the old, now deserted, Mercatone Uno headquarters Mercatone Uno, of course, being the sponsors of Pantani's team in his heyday. Big supermarket chain, um, now gone bust, went bust last year, leaving the future and present of the marble um, uncertain. And in fact, today, Rich, I mean, what we're surrounded by, there are three guys cutting some pretty poorly, previously, before today, I think, poorly tended grass in front of the Mercatone Uno office block. And you can hear the motorway in the background. It's a very odd scene, isn't it? Well, it's odd for us to have stopped here, obviously. I mean, from the motorway, we drove past the marble and it, it's quite a striking objet d'art. I mean, it's quite nice. It's, I, I like it. Um, it could do with a clean, if these gentlemen who are cutting the grass could maybe give it a clean as well because it gets pretty grimy. But as these things go, it's nice. It's nice and simple. There's a, a photograph of Pantani, I think the 98 uh, Giro in the pink jersey. Um, with just his name uh, above that and uh, it's pretty classy I, I like it well we talked about these marbles didn't we that apparently this is a big thing in Italy big thing in particularly this region and the coastal resorts where we'll be later kids used to play marbles a lot maybe still do um, on the beach it was the done thing apparently and a lot of these marbles had the images of cyclists in them in Merckx's day in Gimondi's day and that was what inspired um, the artist responsible for the objet d'art to go for well a, a marble homage um, but Rich the big question now I've been gathering from the local press is who it belongs to or not so much who it belongs to but who it will belong to in the future because as I said the business Mercatone Uno has gone bust. It's gone bust twice in the last few years, but um, the most recent sort of liquidation seems to have been 
definitive. But the office block behind us is still owned, I think, by the Cheni family, the original founders of Mercatoni Uno, and they still own the marble, and they want to keep the marble, and they want to keep it where it is, but there are various people that have got designs on the marble. Um, the, the town of Cesenatico, just up the coast, where we'll be later, they want to take it. It would be, it would be quite tricky, wouldn't it? To well, um, I, don't, I mean, anyone who's played marbles, as we all have, knows that to move a marble, you, you need a bigger marble to and throw it and dislodge it, and... I mean, I can imagine a, what would that bigger marble need like? a, a kind need, of meteorite. We need, need to have Lance Armstrong's image in it, I think, <laughs> to really dislodge it properly. But presumably somebody else will take over this office block, which Ooh. is quite nice. Do they want Marco Pantani in the ground? Well, that's a good question. But as I said, the town of Cesenatico, uh, well, that's one. Should we launch a crowdfunder appeal for this to become the new uh, headquarters for the cycling, for the cycling podcast. podcast instead of cycling not Watford. Podcast Towers. Yes, um, but the, yeah, the Cheney family want it here. As I said, despite the fact that Chesney has to go there, I think they would probably take it to, um, you know, maybe put it by one of the other Pantani monuments there are in Chesney Maybe the, the Pantani Museum, very good Pantani Museum in Chesney but. The people of Imola also apparently are very, well, they're quite fond of this marble because it's been here for 15 years. And it's kind of, you know, it's a very visible landmark from the motorway. The people of Imola, they see it, they know they're close to their home. And it's the fourth most popular tourist attraction in Imola. I mean, how you could, as a tourist, when this place was still up and running, get in and, you know, do what we're doing now, I'm not quite sure. But Well, well I mean, having mentioned that on the podcast a couple of nights ago, Daniel, we had to fight our way through the crowds <laughs> to get here, didn't we? To this but, barren scrubland. But Imola is not a small place. Um, it's got other things going for it, of course. And tragically, this was the scene, the site of Erton Senna's death. And in fact... Um, without, I'm talking about the motor racing circuit where he died in the San Marino Grand Prix and there's a memorial to Senna in Imola which is above the Pantani marble in that list of most visited attractions in Imola Rich, final thing on the marbles um, you know, I said it's a, probably a bigger thing than we realised that was confirmed to me this morning because Daniel Oss was in the mix zone and our friends from Bidon, the Italian podcast were asking him well, what, what in his mind is synonymous with this coastline and Catolica and he said playing marbles on the beach. Now can we get some ice cream? <laughs> or is that was that just <laughs> oh, yesterday? No. no. Ever played marbles, Lionel? I did actually, yeah. Great game to play in the front room. It's sort of a Christmassy game, isn't it? Always would get some marbles at Christmas and then play marbles and then put them away and then get some more marbles <laughs> the next Christmas. <laughs> you Brian? Yeah, I, I did. I was just thinking, but they aren't really made of marble, are they? No, they're, no, they're plastic, aren't they? The yeah, Italian birilli. They're little colouring inside. Yeah, of them. Glass, yeah, glass ones. I mean, plastic. Yeah, good glass marbles, yeah. But there's nothing to do with marble, though. No, they're nothing to do with marble. But the, because of that colouring, the marbly effect, that's probably why they get the name, no? Should Someone should investigate that for... <laughs> should <laughs> listeners, know, should listeners deduce from the content of tonight's podcast that... From this day forward, since Brian's arrival, we will not be talking much about cycling in the future. I hope not, because no. that's not the case. I'm here we're, to talk about cycling. We're I, here I used mainly to, work to in that talk industry, about cycling, you know? mainly. Yeah. yeah, we should just say, yeah, Brian worked through the whole gamut in uh, cycling. You've been in PR with uh, Team CSC, Team Sky. You were the first head of communications for Team Sky back first in 2010. First of 100. Yeah, well, and uh, you've also been a team manager at Leopard Trek. I'm not going to call them Leopard. That we'll was call the, them whatever that, you want. That was the PR department, wasn't it? 
And now you, um, you're a journalist, you work on Danish TV as well, you work for a Danish newspaper, and you're here on the Cycling Podcast as well as your, your mini sideline in, in wine. Based on what we've seen in the last couple of days, tomorrow he'll be leading out sprints. Absolutely. In the Giro d'Italia. <laughs> and on that note, chaps, should we call it a night? Let's do that. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Lionel. And welcome, Brian. Thank you, guys. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burner.